Would you like this morning for the Lord to impact you by his word? Okay, that was a little weak. Would, would you like for the Holy Spirit to plant living seeds in you that will change your life forever? Okay, let's ask him to do it right now. Father, we come in Jesus' name knowing that you are the teacher through your Holy Spirit of the church. Would you take your living word, plant it into every heart, and Lord, I pray again that no heart would escape your planting of your seeds, that we would all be transformed in some level, made more conformed to the image of your Son, to where you would see in us after this day more of the beauty of your Son in each of us. That's a miracle, Lord. We're asking for a miracle to happen here this morning, but your Word is alive. It's powerful, and it's sharp, and it pierces, and it shapes and it transforms and gives life. So we are grateful, and we believe in Jesus' name. If you agree with that, say amen. amen. You can be seated. I've been having a um, gut check with the Lord here recently, a heart check with Him, and um, I want to share that with you. Is that Okay. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus called Matthew, the tax collector, to be one of his disciples. And after that, they had a big gathering in a house. And lots of tax collectors were gathering with them there. And the Pharisees were ticked off. And they said to the disciples in Jesus' hearing, Why does your teacher get with tax collectors and sinners? It's disgusting. And Jesus answered and said, The physician doesn't come for the well, but for the sick. I have come for those. And go in your scripture in the book of Hosea and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And that phrase has stuck in my heart, and I've been doing a heart check, working through that with the Lord, like... He's not just talking about one act. He's talking about a heart that is merciful. That's a big value to him. So the title of this message is, I Desire Mercy. I'm going to share with you some of my own wrestle and what the Lord is doing, and I believe he's doing it in his body. Luke chapter 6 is going to be our main text. If you want to turn there, we're going to read verses 31 to 38 in Luke 6. I desire mercy. Do we have a merciful heart or not? Luke 6, 31. The Son of God said these words. We're sharing with knowledge this weekend. The thing that stirs me the most and makes me the most passionate about God's word and about preaching and teaching it is to be able to just say, God said this. Can you believe? I mean, God said this. These words are full of life and power. This isn't somebody's opinion. This is the God who created everything, who said these words. 
Like, they should be very weighty on my soul, and I want them to shape me. I put myself under the Word of God, and I want it to squeeze me, and I want it to shape me, because in my heart, I want to give Jesus what He desires. Are you with me there? He said, I desire mercy. So can we take a moment this morning and just see if there's anything in us that needs to be formed and shaped by His heart, where our heart has gotten out of bounds a little bit. Verse 31, I'll read through this and we'll make some comments. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same thing. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. So the point of those verses is, if you're actually a follower of mine, the level of what you are going to walk in needs to be higher than just a good sinner, right? Because that doesn't reflect any glory to the Lord that we just act like good sinners, We're just nice people. That's not okay with him. He has a higher standard. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. Notice this phrase. It strikes me like a ton of bricks. For he himself is kind to the ungrateful, and to evil men. If you want to be called the son of God, he's saying, a child of God, then you need to reflect the character of the Father. And what is his character, Jesus said? He's kind to the ungrateful. That's pretty hard, right? How many raised any kids in here? One of the things that would chafe me and trigger me, as my friends would say, I get triggered, would be if we did something for the kids that was nice and they would retort, and this was really rare, but something like, oh, that was good, but I wanted to go to Disney. (laughs) I remember one time growing up and my parents had bought a beach house in Nags Head. It overlooked the Albemarle Sound was beautiful. It was in the shape of a boat, custom-built house, really cool. And on spring break, when we were in school there, we would go out there, and there was things to be done in the yard. And I remember my middle brother, and I, I learned from this. We were sitting at the table, and my dad was talking about, okay, we're going to go on spring break, and we're going to go up there, and, you know, there's, we'll be able to enjoy the, the sound and the water. We had a sailboat, and it was really cool. He said, but I'd like to do some work around the yard there. And my brother made some kind of comment like, oh, that sounds like lots of fun. And my dad got triggered. I won't tell you exactly what he said. But I learned I'll never say that to him. Ungratefulness is hard to deal with. When you have been generous with somebody Think of how generous God is with everybody on the planet. 
how he's given us all of the good gifts and what the old-time theologians call common grace. We can go to the ocean. We can walk on his beach. We can look at his stars. We can look at his Grand Canyon. We can go up on the ski slopes on his mountains. We can do all of these things. We can enjoy all the good food he gives us, the relationships, family, all of the things that are blessings in our lives that we share in common, and yet... Never give him thanks. Just be like ungrateful because we don't have as much as Bill Gates. Why is Bill Gates a billionaire and I'm not? Like, think of how that sounds to the Father who has blessed and sent his reign and given us breath and given us water. He's kind to the ungrateful. But not only to the ungrateful, he's kind to those who are evil. This is like the strongest word in the Greek language for bad. It is literally the Greek word for the evil one. So this is what the devil's nature is. And the Father God is kind even to the evil. So here's, here's two pictures. So I'm, I'm a word guy. I love words. There, there's two Greek words for bad or evil. One is the word for bad, which is kakos, which means you're corrupt, you're rotten. That's bad. But you mostly see then it yourself in your own rottenness. It's not really hurting other people. But when you're paneros, which is the Greek word for evil, you can't rest unless you're infecting somebody, hurting somebody, taking somebody down with you, making them be poisoned and toxic and miserable. That's what evil is. And the fathers, Jesus said the Father. How many believe Jesus knows what the Father's like? You believe Jesus knows what the Father's like, or is he just kind of shooting from the hip? No, he and the Father are one. The Father God is kind even to the wicked. Next verse. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. So I ask myself, is that what I would say about myself? Is my heart full of mercy? Is my main default to show kindness when people provoke me, when they're evil, when they're ungrateful, when I've been wronged? Is that really my heart response or not? We we live in a, an environment, and you know this, that is really toxic. It's like the most toxic that I've ever seen in my life. I'm not that old. I still am a young adult, so I always raise my hand when they ask for young adults. But I've, I've never seen it quite as toxic as it is now. In the political realm, it's super toxic, and I know that that's been through human history. There's always that, but I, I've never personally experienced the toxicity of it. And that isn't what alarms me so much. What alarms me is that I see that the church of Jesus Christ has gotten into that same toxicity. And it dishonors the name of the Lord. Can, can I... I have strong political opinions. I'm conservative. But I won't blow up our relationship if you're not. I won't hate you if we have different convictions about politics. But, but in the current climate, when a gathering of thousands of Christians get together and start 
chanting, let's go, Brandon? That's evil. That, that's the farthest thing from the representation of the heart of Jesus that I can possibly imagine. What are we doing? That's craziness. Not only is it crazy, it dishonors Jesus. Yeah, there's lots of things happening politically that chafe me, and I, and I sit there and I say to myself sometimes, this is insane. What, what in the world? This makes no sense whatsoever. But, but do you know the Bible? The Bible. The Bible tells us in at least two places to honor the king. Do you know when Peter wrote that in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 8? Honor the king. Do you know who was the emperor in Rome then? Nero. Do you know anything about Nero? Nero was an insane demoniac who had his own mother murdered because he was afraid she would try to take the throne from him. He had his stepbrother murdered for the same reason. He, most historians believe, he, he set Rome on fire because there was a plot of land. This is kind of like an Ahab thing where he wanted the vineyard. He wanted this land to expand his palace, and they wouldn't sell it to him, so he burned it down. It caught the whole city of Rome on fire, and then he blamed the Christians as being the ones who set it on fire, and there was a massive persecution where tens of thousands of Christians were burned, murdered, taken to the Colosseum, and killed by wild animals. Peter says, honor that man. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, first of all, I want you believers to pray for all who are, first of all, when you gather together, I want you to pray for all who are in authority, for kings. So I wonder in our atmosphere now, I hear believers and, and I wonder what Jesus thinks when we mock President Biden. I wonder what he thinks of us. I'm not, this is not a beatdown. This, this is a heart check that I'm walking through myself, okay? This is not a beatdown. But, but can we honestly consider, do we, like, I know most of us in this room, we prayed for President Trump. Do we pray for President Biden? Or do we just want him to get the heck out? Are we disciples who represent the nature of the Father in the way that our heart responds to evil, ungrateful men? Sobering. These are the words of the Son of God. What is mercy? Here's what scholars say the word mercy means. This attribute prevents one from being overly harsh in judgment and prevents one from being quick to pounce on the evildoer. What is commanded is an attitude that is hesitant to condemn and quick to forgive. This, this is a heart default issue. Where does our heart go first in the midst of a situation? Where does our heart go? Are we quick to judge and want somebody to get what they deserve? That is the opposite of justice or, or of mercy. If we want immediate justice or what we perceive to be immediate justice on somebody, then we need to do a gut check and a heart check like we 
do we have the merciful heart of Jesus? He says, if you act just like sinners, so what? That's not the standard we're called to. We're called to be people that are merciful, that that is our default. That doesn't mean there's no truth. That doesn't mean there's no correction. But what it does mean is when we do need to correct and we do need to confront, we do it out of a heart of mercy. Not so somebody gets exposed and gets shamed and gets justice and gets their just desserts, but so they get restored and get helped. You see the difference in the heart of Jesus? He confronted plenty. But his heart was always trying to bring people to restoration and wholeness, not to shame and destruction and immediate judgment. Disciples went out preaching the gospel, casting out devils. A couple of them came back to Jesus and said, Lord, they rejected us. You want us to call down fire from heaven on them? Like, you, this is the word of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. You're the son of the living God. Like, let's just call fire down from them. Like, they need to be, they deserve to be judged. And Jesus said, you, you don't know what spirit you're operating by. Because that's, that's not my spirit. That's an evil spirit. Blessed are the merciful, right? Jesus said in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, verse 7. Why are they blessed? Blessed are the merciful. You finish it. For they will receive mercy. What would be the opposite of that? What happens to the unmerciful? God calls us to be people of mercy. Mercy is not giving what is deserved, but what is needed. It's not a desire for immediate justice, but a desire for restoration and wholeness. This is the total game changer. Is my default how many have ever been hurt by anybody? Like bad hurt, like stabbed hurt. I mean, in your heart. Okay, that's most of us. If we have altar call for, for church hurt, altars are always full. Okay, It can be the same people and do it 10 times in one. It's always full. It's still full because everybody believes that they've been hurt by the church. And part, I'm not saying it's not. You know why they've been hurt by the church? Because there's people in it and because you're in it. And because we don't necessarily follow what Jesus said and how we interact with each other, and so then we collect church hurts, and then our whole identity becomes, my experience in church has sucked because every time I go there, people hurt me. Well, it probably works both ways because there's probably a whole long list of people that can put you on their list of people uh, that have hurt them. Why is that? I'm not saying we're going to ever eliminate that, but what would it look like if there was a community of people that read this passage and said to themselves, oh, dear Jesus, would you give me a heart overhaul? Wash me from the residue of bitterness. There's like broken fragments inside of our soul that are still bitter. Anybody? 
And like, we need the Lord to wash that out so it doesn't become toxic. In every relationship, we're automatically suspicious. They're going to hurt me. Instead of saying, I'm going to love with a full heart and I'm going to be merciful even if they're ungrateful or evil. How would that change the game? We're so defensive of guarding ourselves, and it's, it's not Jesus' heart. So I want to give us four, there's four helps, four points in developing a more merciful heart. Anybody with me, like we, we could use a little bit of this? Okay, here's number one. Ephesians chapter two, you can turn there if you like. I'm going to read the first four verses. You're familiar with them, but let's just think about them in this context a little bit closer. How do we develop a more merciful heart? Number one, remember where we all came from. We forget. We forget. How can we look at people that are evil and self-centered and despise them when that's what we were? 100% we were that. You know, we, we weren't just bad. We were evil. And, and we weren't just broken. This is the language that we put on it. I was just such a broken person without Christ. Yeah, you were broken, but you were giving God the finger every day. Tell him, get out of my life. I don't want you. I don't care what you think. I don't care what you want. I don't care about your rules. I don't care about your laws. I'm going to do what I want, and I'm mad at you because you don't give me what I want. Come on. That's the Bible picture of every person without Christ. That's not an exaggeration. Look at what it says here in Ephesians 2. This is just one of them. If you want more, read Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Staggering. That's why Paul said he preached the gospel, because every person is so fallen and twisted and depraved and in rebellion against God, the only way to save us was for Jesus Christ to come and live the life that we must live and take our place and die for our sin. That's the only way. This is not extreme makeover material. This is dead. You were dead, verse 1 of Ephesians 2, in trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked. What does that imply? That implies that we willingly walked. 1 John 5, 19 says the whole world lies willingly in the lap of the evil one. That was me. As a stupid little 14, 15-year-old boy doing drugs, chasing girls, just trying to get any kind of fleshly indulgence I wanted, Cursing my parents. Like, I committed at least three sins before I was 15 that were death penalty sins. And you would have looked at my life and go, oh, a poor little cute boy. But from God's perspective, I committed three sins at least that were worthy of the death penalty. This is quiet preaching, right? No, this is real. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. We willingly walked in them. According to the course of this world, that's what we went after. According to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, the evil spirit of Satan was working inside of us, and we were happy with it. We were willing accomplices to let him drive us to do all kinds of things that were rebellious against God. Read Romans 1 if you don't believe it. That's the whole point of Paul leading into what the gospel is and why we need it. Among them, too, 
Notice this, verse 3. Among them, we too all. That means even if you were raised in Sunday school, even if you memorized the verses, even if you got the little stars that the missionettes got because they memorized all that, before Christ rescued you, this is who you were. We formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, guilty, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, guilty, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. Notice that he said all. This isn't the most extreme people. This is everybody outside of Christ. This is the reason why the gospel is such good news. It's not improving life. It's taking a corpse that was rotten and eaten by worms and raising it to life and putting his face on your face and breathing life into your soul. Sorry about that. That fires me up. The Lord apprehended me. I was like a bird with two broken wings trying to run across I-4 in Orlando at rush hour. I had no chance. There's no chance. It's so powerful. This is one of the most powerful verses in all of the Scripture. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, Because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. That's your story whether you know it or not. You might not say it as forcefully as I say it. But like this is a real thing. This was our story. God's mercy snatched that little bird Before the semi-truck crushed it into powder, that was me. 100% that was me. He's rich in mercy. And if we have his DNA, we like to talk about the DNA of God. We have the DNA. So he's asking the question now, if you have my DNA, then you should be rich in mercy too then your default when you're done wrong should not be to get the long knives out of the cabinet and hide around the corner, just wait for the opportunity. I'll make them pay for that. Or to try to defame or tear them down or go and start chanting, let's go, Brandon. No, I'm serious. Our witness to the world is a lot more obvious than we think. It's just like parents in a home. You think your kids don't know. Like, dude, they know everything. When they get to be adults, they go, you remember when this and that, and you guys were talking in your room? Well, you heard that? Oh, yeah, we always heard. The world sees. And they're wondering if there's anything real Because we shout and sing and we're Pentecostal and we say Jesus does miracles. And he restores brokenness. But then they see 
how unmerciful we can be. I'm not talking, listen, if you know me at all, you know that I'm a truth guy. I'm not going to compromise the truth of, of that word at all. And I'm not talking about compromise. What I'm talking about is our heart posture. When we speak truth, it should come out of a heart of mercy. When we confront, it should come out of a heart of mercy. When we discipline our children, we don't do it in anger. We do it because we love them. It's a real thing. They're like, yeah, right. No, it is. It's a real thing. We want them to be the best that they can be. And if we don't help you tame that flesh, little one, all that fleshy flesh, just hanging or just rolls and rolls of fleshy flesh in you that you're just dominated by. We have to help you get self-control because if we don't, you'll never be able to keep a relationship. You'll never be able to have a job. You'll never be able to get along with people. You'll always be miserable your whole life because you're so self-absorbed. We've got to help you get out of that. That's not mercy to not discipline. It's love to discipline because we're helping them to become what they were created to be, right? And the Lord does the same thing for us. That's why He said, don't spare for their crying. They won't die, but you'll save their soul from hell. That's what the Bible says. It's not what I said. But we need to do it from a heart of mercy in all that we do. We should represent the one who is merciful. The unmerciful heart is an ungrateful heart. If we can't reflect the mercy that we have received, if we can't see this picture of ourselves in Ephesians chapter 2, how corrupt and how hopeless we were. Like, look, a dead is dead. It's not like we needed an improvement. We don't need more makeup. We stinking need a resurrection. If we can't see ourselves that we were dead and that we lived in rebellion, you should look at the pictures in the New Testament that talk about what sin is. And the essence of it is, it's, it's, it's rebellion against God. It's saying no to God at every point that matters. It's unrighteousness. God, I don't care what your character and your standard is. I'm going to make my own. It's lawlessness. It's saying to God, I don't care what your standards are and what your laws are. That sucks. I'm going to do what I want. Don't you see that? Whatever's not of faith is sin. God, I don't trust you. Why should I? Only if you do what I want you to do for me am I going to trust you. You see, every picture in the New Testament of sin is basically belittling God, throwing Him under the bus, and rebelling against Him. This would be a game changer for us if we, like, believed the gospel there. Every day would be amazing. I think of the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, right at the end of the thing when he comes out of that whole thing where he didn't exist. Remember that? Have you guys seen that? Maybe that's just old school. But he comes out of it, I'm alive! I'm going to jail! Isn't that great news? It doesn't matter at this point. Well, yeah, brother, but we got to correct. Matthew 18, you know, we got to confront the brother and drag him before the church and then throw him out and cast him as a, a tax gatherer and a sinner. 
yeah, but you probably missed the context around those verses. So let me just read the lead in and the lead out of Matthew 18 where we talk about if your brother sins, go and show him his sin in private. If he listens to you, you have won the argument. Is that what it says? You've won your brother. Do you see the point of of this in Matthew 18? It's not to shame and expose somebody and bring out their sin and make them feel humiliated. It's to restore them. Right? You're supposed to restore the relationship that's been broken. That's what mercy does. It doesn't point the finger and go, you scumbag. How could you possibly do that? I know how because I was an Ephesians 2 man from start to finish. I could have done anything. Listen, if I, if I was put in the right setting, I could have been a sniper for Al-Qaeda. That's a real thing. The depravity in me ran so deep, if you would have put me in the right circumstance when I was young, I could have been a mass murderer. You're like, that wouldn't be me. See, you don't see yourself rightly in what you got rescued from. That's a real thing. Matthew 18, the lead-in, verse 15 through 20 is, is that passage that we go after sometimes. And I had this conversation recently with somebody, and um, I just began to think about it. Yeah, I mean, confrontation is needed, but the spirit with which we do it is all important. What is our goal? Are we trying to beat the snot out of somebody because they irritated us? I mean, what, what are we doing? Are we trying to actually restore them? This is the hard work, right? So Galatians chapter 6, verse 2 says, uh, verse 1 says, If anyone is overtaken in a fault, a sin, a trespass, let you who are spiritual restore such a one. Right? Restore such a one. That's what mercy does. In a spirit of gentleness and meekness, lest you yourself be tempted as well. Because you've got to realize in, in real meekness and in real humility and in real mercy, your heart is to restore and to bring wholeness out of brokenness. It's not any other reason. So you do it in gentleness. You do it out of love. So Matthew 18, verse 12 through 14, I'll just read. This is Jesus' lead-in into the confront your brother passage. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it. More than over the 99 which have not gone astray, so it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. Do you see the lead in there? If you don't get that lead in, you don't get the spirit behind it. The spirit behind it is if somebody has strayed, you go chase them and find them because you want to restore them because the Father wants them. That's a heart of mercy. If you have a heart of a Pharisee, you want to expose them, you want to shame them, you want to make them pay now. You deserve. Mercy is not about deserve. 
It's about what we don't deserve. The mercy we have received from God is what we do not deserve. He did not give us what we deserve. What did we deserve? What did we deserve? Hell? Lake of fire, separated from God forever, tormented, burning with fire. That is the extent. Do you think God is unjust? Do you think the penalty for a life lived in rebellion against God is too over the top? Like, is God fly off the handle and he's just not just? No, it is just. The issue is we don't see the depth of the offense, and so we can't rejoice with amazed wonder at the fact that he has rescued us and showed us such mercy, rich in mercy. So amazing. Remember where we came from. So huge. Number two, mercy desires restoration and not judgment. It's not a gotcha. It's never a gotcha. Number three, there is only one judge, and it's not you. James chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. If you want to look there, this is huge. The Lord has spanked me with this verse before, um, and I thank him for it. Absolutely. James chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. I would wager that these verses are not on your refrigerator on a magnet. <laughs> but maybe they should be. James chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. So what is the point of that passage? Okay, it starts out, do not speak against one another, brethren. We could probably camp there for a little while, right? Anybody? Here's somebody who is so arrogant that they're putting themselves in the place of the judge of their brother and interpreting the law and what should be the penalty of it for them because they've messed up again and they should be brought to justice. That's the spirit behind this. Verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? Like, it's, it's always troublesome when God asks you that question like that, with that tone. Who are you? Paul said the same thing in Romans chapter 14 when he's talking about them striving and judging one another's convictions. We're not talking about biblical sins now. We're talking about whether they kept the Sabbath or not keep the Sabbath, whether they um, ate meat that had been sacrificed to idols maybe or not. He said, who are you? Same question, hard question. Who are you to judge the servant of another? He's not your servant. What are you doing, judging? He's not your servant. He's the Lord's servant, and the Lord is able to make him stand, and he will make him stand. That's what Paul said. Just because he has different convictions than you, are we going to, are we going to say that it's okay to break fellowship as believers if we have different opinions about things? No. There, there is a reason if there's a, if there's a brother in rebellion 
who was unrepentant after repeated pleading, then that is a reason, Paul said, to excommunicate. If there's a brother who's living in adultery with his stepmother, like in 1 Corinthians 5, that's a reason to break fellowship. If somebody's in persistent sin, and Paul said if they're a drunkard, if they're a thief, if they're an extortioner, if they're a coveter, those kind of people, and they're not repenting of it, then you should break fellowship with them. Why? What's the point? So they'll be shamed, and they'll get their justice. No, 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 no. So that they can come to their senses and repent, because that's their hope. But that's the last hope. But what is our default? There, there's lots of justice and truth warriors around, and, and what they really are, be honest with you, and I'm not excluding myself from this at some points in my life, for real, they're fault finders, and they're looking, they're the sin police, and it's not the spirit of Jesus, because He's full of mercy, and His default is, how can I help you? How can I be part of the process where you can get restored, full of mercy. Who are you? I was in a bad church situation. I was on staff. We ended up leaving and going. That's when we started home churching. And it was brutal. It was the most brutal thing that I've probably ever been part of. It was like a bad divorce on steroids. And we didn't see it coming. And I won't give you all the details. If I did, your mouth would drop open pretty bad. But I was traumatized, to say the least. And in my heart, whenever I would think about this person, I'd be like, so wrong and so evil. And the Lord took me to this passage one day. And I was reading in the Word. And the Holy Spirit came and said, hey, I want to talk to you about something. It's your heart. It's gotten hard in places. Those wounded places, you haven't let me completely heal those and cleanse because you wanted to hold on to some reason to have a vendetta. But look, there's only one judge. This is how the Holy Spirit brought it to me. It is not you. <laughs> it's really not you. It's the Lord. Why does Paul say, let no one continue on judging these things? In 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, if you want to reference it. Let, stop doing that because I'm not conscious of anything that's against me in my own conscience, but that doesn't clear me. The Lord is the one who knows all of the thoughts and intents and motives of my heart. And on that day we stand before Jesus, He's going to bring out all of our motives or why we did everything. It's all going to be exposed. So this is the good news of how we can release things. Even if somebody persists in trying to hurt us, we can release those things knowing they're going to be put out on the table. And here's the thing. We can't be the judge. Why can't we be the judge? Because the most important piece of evidence that we need to judge, we don't have, which is what the heart motives are. That's what the Lord does. He weighs the heart motives of people. Why did you do the thing is more important maybe than what you did. And we don't know that information, but we still want to pass these sweeping judgments. And the Lord said, who are you? Who, who are you? Like, do you, do you not think he said that in a term to make us feel our arrogance when we do that? 
Like we don't have the information to judge people's hearts. And he doesn't give us that information because it's not our business. On that day, Paul says, everybody's motives are going to be spread out on the table. We're going to see everything, and everybody's going to be judged according to what the Lord knows about the depths of our heart. You know what that makes me want to do? It makes me want to get on my knees and say, God, purify my motives because I don't know sometimes why I do things, and I don't want to stand before you on that day and have all of these ugly things on the table, and I'm sitting there looking at them, and you're going... Let, let's get the blood of washing me now. Let's, let's process now and get my heart in a place where I'm merciful. Blessed are the merciful. Why? Because on that day, they're going to receive mercy. They're going to receive mercy on that day. Like we need to think in the light of eternity in how we do our relationships and in how we keep our heart. Guard your heart with all diligence. Because out of it flow all of the issues of life. And if it's tainted, and if it's toxic, and if it's poison, that poison comes out. You can try to hide it. You can smooth it over. You can rub perfume on it. But it still comes out, and it becomes toxic to other people. And it's not okay to the Lord. He wants us to be people that are merciful in our hearts. And here's number four. I'm done. Pray to God, it's only a few minutes after 12. Unmerciful hearts will receive harsher judgment. Let me give you a couple witnesses. Matthew 18, we'll look back there, and I want to show you the end, the thing that comes right after the passage of how we're supposed to handle our brother or sister when we're calling them on the carpet how we're supposed to handle that. Then Jesus goes into this whole parable about forgiveness. Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Jesus chuckled. He said, no, um, not seven, but 70 times seven. And another gospel says every day. So that's a lot. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. You know this. So this one guy is forgiven 10,000 talents, which according to the Bible scholars that I've read is more money than was in the entire economy of Palestine. I did the, the math on it, and the best way you can understand how much money 10,000 talents is is to understand an average wage for a working man and then put that into the number of days. So if you multiply that out, and I won't do it here, but I have it written in my Bible, that means 10,000 talents is 164,383 years of work straight with no days off. What does that mean? Duh. The debt can never be paid by a long shot. It's... It's an exaggerated, hyperbolic number because Jesus wanted to make the impression the debt that you owe to God is so phenomenally huge, you can't even calculate it, and you could never pay it back in a thousand lifetimes if you worked every day. And yet, I've got another servant who came, and he owed me 
100 denarii. Now, 100 denarii is not chump change. It's like three months' wages, though, for the average man. It's, it's, it's money, but it nowhere approximates 10,000 talents. So then, what does that man do? He's forgiven this phenomenal debt that is incalculable. No way he could possibly pay it off. He goes and finds that servant who owed him a hundred denarii and starts choking him and saying, you pay me right now. And that servant says to him, no, have mercy on me. I'll pay you. Just give me time. He said, no. And he threw him into debtor's prison. And when the other servants heard it, they came to the king and they told him. And the king's response was, verse 32, then summoning him, the Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have also had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father, this is the Son of God. Now, you should not lightly dismiss what he says. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. That's going to happen in eternity. I don't want to be on that end of things. And then, one last verse out of James 2. James has got some sharp tools in his bag. Look at this verse in James 2.13. Let's, let's read 12 and 13. James 2. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Listen, listen to this. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. That's terrifying. That's terrifying. Judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. God help me to have a merciful heart. Again, we're not talking about throwing the truth away, minimizing it, becoming seeker-friendly, compromising the truth of Scripture. That will never happen. That will never happen here. But there is a heart posture that we speak the truth in. And it is the base of operations of a heart that is full of mercy. Another one in James 3, he's talking about the wisdom from above and the wisdom from below, right? And, and, and one of the characteristics of the wisdom from above is that it is full of mercy. If, if we're dealing with people in a way that's not full of mercy, we're not dealing with the wisdom from above but the wisdom below. It's a sobering. I'm with you. But like we need to make our hearts right. Mick, can you come up and, and just play a little bit? Here's what I want to do. I know some of you have to leave. It's seven minutes after 12. Okay, it's still pretty early from heart of the father standards. Okay. Um, but y'all, listen. 
I want to give us an opportunity. I, I want to make, make two, two calls. First of all, if, if you need to take time to get before the Lord and get your heart cleaned out of some things and you need for him to help your heart to become merciful towards anyone or anything, then I want you to come up here and just spend time with the Lord. And if you need mercy from the Lord for something, I want you to come. So I want to open the altars. I'm not going to make a big plea. I'm going to ask Nick to just play and sing something. Let's just take some time to wait upon the Lord. Like this is all important that we take the word of Jesus seriously and, and let it shape our hearts. We can't afford as believers to walk around with an unmerciful heart. It is toxic. Let's get rid of it. The Lord welcomes us to come and to get our hearts free. Bless you guys. So I'm going to, this is, this is the release, okay? If you need to go, you can go. If you, if you don't need to go and you want to wait, I'm inviting you to do that. you help us. We want to rightly represent you in our hearts. Lord, we've been injured. We've been damaged goods. We have broken fragments in our souls so often. Would you help us and come and by the washing of the water of your word and by the rain of your Holy Spirit presence, would you wash away the defilement that remains in us where we want somebody to be punished for what they've done and hurt us. We want them to be shamed and humiliated. God, would you take that heart of stone out of us and replace it with a heart of flesh that cries out for mercy, not only for ourselves, but for those that have hurt us, for those that have damaged us, done us wrong. Jesus. Jesus.